Hey everyone, welcome to episode 328 of Farmers Inside Track, the podcast where we explore the frontiers of farming in Mzanzi. I'm your host, Donumdu. Today's episode delves into the dynamic realm of genetic modification and its profound impact on modern agriculture. Our expert, Godwin Demgo, Regulatory Scientific Affairs Manager for Bayer Crop Science in Africa, based in Kenya, guides us through the latest advancements that are reshaping how we grow our food. Throughout the discussion, we'll navigate through groundbreaking techniques in genetic modification, spotlighting their significance in crop breeding and development. Godwin, it is such a pleasure to have you here with me on the Farmers Inside Track podcast. I usually like to start with just an introduction of who I'm speaking to, the person's background, just a bit about you, what got you into the agricultural space. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Don. My name is Godwin Lemgo, originally a Ghanaian, and I work with Biocrop Science. Essentially, my, my role is to try and demystify the science behind some of our ag technologies, try to minimize some of these misinformation you would normally usually find around our technologies, but also to try and get the workable policy landscape to ensure that these technologies, as important as they are, can make their way to the hands of the farmers who needs these technologies the most. A bit of my background, I started off as a regulator with the Food and Drugs Authority in Ghana, and I would say I ended up in this space of uh, biotech and genetic modification, should I say by chance, out of sheer hatred for this technology, because back there there was a lot of emotional debate around this technology when I was starting off as a regulator. I am a scientist, but at least I'll consider myself as someone who has constructable science background. And yet I was really appalled by what I was hearing about this technology. And, and that brought me in, into this space with the intention of fighting this technology. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized, actually, I was uh, fighting a wrong fight. And so I developed through the system to try and understand these technologies more. And that actually helped me to realize there's actually a different side to this technology that I didn't know. I pursued that further, and here I am. I transitioned from there as a regulator to join the Africa Union, uh, where we were actually helping countries in sub-Saharan Africa who were interested in these technologies to put together enabling policies to enable them to assess these technologies thus before joining Bayer. Myself, I'll consider myself as someone who has actually practiced this technology before. I worked on on peaches. It's not something we grew a lot here in Africa, but uh, I was really curious on how we can produce rootstocks for peach plants using genetic modification. And I did a bit of transformation work around that as well. Absolutely amazing. I'm always so fascinated just by how people kind of journey through the sector from one thing to the next and also just one thing leading to the next. So it's absolutely amazing. I'm so grateful that you're able to share your expertise with us today and to definitely demystify some of the conceptions around genetic modification. And that's actually my first question would be just to provide us with an overview of the latest advancements in genetic modification techniques and the impact on modern agriculture. And here you can definitely bring in some of the practices, some of your experience, some of the farmers that you're working with. Sure. And I think sometimes when we hear genetic modification, it it often feels like this is a, a new technology that someone is pushing down our altars to just monopolize our food systems. And it's not. As long as a dawn of man, we've been practicing genetic modification. Myself, as a young kid, when I used to grow maize with my mother, we would go to the maize field and after harvesting, would select the nicer cobs, we hang those in the kitchen, dry them up, and that's what we cultivate during the next season. This is us selecting desirable traits. 
and making sure that we keep those desirable traits that we want. Breeders saw that and decided to do this and they can pick up on desirable traits and breed for those desirable traits using just traditional breeding, crossing one desirable trait with the other. But that comes with its own downsides because then you have a really lengthy selection process because you're bringing two different traits together, mixing them together, and then with the hope that you get something that you like. And then there's a continuous advancement from this place where now you find scientists just bombarding plants with uh, radiation and then causing mutations here and there. And then you go through that laborious selection process again, just to find out what worked, what didn't work, and then you, you keep the ones that are good and then you pass them on. We are now at the phase where I would say scientists understand a bit more about what's behind those desirable traits. So if I see a plant that is tall, or a plant that is purple color, or a plant that is growing somewhere in the desert, what is making that plant grow there in the desert or making this plant purple or making this plant tall? Now we understand that, which means that we can actually take those desirable traits directly without really having to take the entire baggage of mixing one plant trait with the other. We're just selecting what we need. And this is where the modern breeding or modern biotechnology comes in, in that we can just go in there, a donor plant. I want the tall plant, so I take out just that bit that controls height. And I transfer that into the plant that I, I want to grow. And that's what now we are calling GMOs. Terrible name. I wouldn't call it that. But yes, it's just another form of breeding where you cannot precisely just lift particular desirable trait. We are now even going into new frontiers where again, they're calling it genome editing, where now you can begin to make those point mutations in a more precise way. I know exactly what kind of mutation would make this plant grow shorter or perhaps taller or change color here and there. So I can just go precisely and make those exact mutations using tools that are now called uh, genome editing. So as you can see, the technology is evolving by the day. We are pushing boundaries just to ensure that we can breed desirable traits that can future-proof our food systems in a changing climate. Definitely. And I think that's a very vital aspect to it. But more so, I mean, just from what I'm listening to, how you've explained it to me, because whenever you see any labeling that says GMO, people kind of just steer away from it completely without really understanding it. So that's definitely what this conversation hopes to do. We hope to kind of change people's perspectives on it, but more so just having them understand from your point of view. So thanks so much for that. What are some of the you know most promising and innovative genetic modification techniques that have emerged in crop breeding and development? And how do yeah. they differ from conventional methods? Just before I get to that, there's one more analogy. And for, for those of you who are as old as I am, we grew up in the era of cassette tapes. If I take a cassette tape, what's your favorite artist, Don? Well, at the moment, I love Cleo Soul. Okay, this particular artist of yours, you get a cassette tape from this particular artist. It doesn't matter which cassette player you put this in, you expect to hear that same song. You can travel to anywhere in the world, pick any record player, put in this cassette, it will play that same song. And I'm using this analogy, it might be a poor analogy, but it's the same in plants and organisms as well. Whatever makes a plant tall, I can take that cassette, put it in another plant, and I expect that it will still make this other plant tall. A bit of oversimplification, but I think you get the picture. And because we have this better understanding of some of these organisms, now it means that we can do things that in a more quicker way than it used to be in the past. And now we have very good examples. For instance, let's take insect protection. For a very long time, let's say in organic agriculture, would would take either soil and then sprinkle it on their plants, and they realize actually 
this is actually killing some of the pests. Or they have crystallized Bt powder that they spray on, on their pests. Of course, we know it's not the soil that is killing it. There's something in the soil that is killing this pest. So I think the normal instinct is let's purify this soil, let's extract that material, and then let's spray it on the fields, and then we can kill this pest. This is just a protein. What if we can make the plant produce this protein? That's the next step of breeding, such that the plant is now immunized. The plant is now protecting itself against these insects. And so you have crops that they call BT crops, all sorts of names for it, that are able to protect themselves against insect pests. In other words, the pest feeds on these crops, the pest dies, but the crop survives. Some of the innovative technologies that are coming in now, giving plants the ability to protect itself. But going beyond that, we have the ability now to improve the nutrient profile of crops. As we speak, we have crops like cassava that has been bred now that has uh, increased zinc and iron content and has been bred to resist viral diseases. So you can now easily produce very nutritious cassava, which is, by the way, a resilient crop. A similar work being done in sorghum, where you're increasing nutrient profile and protecting against striga. We have even weed control. I'm sure if you talk to any farmer in South Africa, they'll tell you controlling weed is a headache for any farm. So what if I can have a crop that is resistant to some of the chemical methods of controlling weed, such that I can spray these chemical weed control methods and my crop will still be standing. I don't have to be manually weeding the entire field all the time. Those are really real-life products that brings convenience to the farmer. And more and more are being developed every day. Besides the convenience, there's also just the cost of it. Less money spent on this practice. <laughs> exactly. It's very interesting. We had a really fascinating conversation around sorghum production on our weekly Gather to Grow session and on Farmers Inside Track as well. So we'd love to kind of explore that as well at a later stage with you. And also cassava. I don't think we've done enough on that. And I know that our farmers want to know more about it. I want to shift the conversation more to know regulatory aspects of it. What are the key regulatory and ethical considerations that commercial farmers specifically should be aware of when adopting genetically modified crops? with desire plates. Let's focus on that for a minute. Thanks. The biggest dilemma when people hear about genetic modification is, are we playing God? No, we are not playing God. And as a farmer, you can grow this crop with the peace of mind, knowing that no no scientist anyway is sitting in a lab and trying to play God. I think God gives us the knowledge and insight to be able to understand these things and, and to be able to breed improved varieties. I can tell you, Don, if you looked at any plant we eat today and you go back, say, 100, 200 years, I'm not even talking thousands of years, it's definitely not the same. Take a look at Yosinte. That is essentially maize several years ago, and it's nothing like the maize we are eating today. Take watermelon, it's the same thing. What watermelon used to be in like 100 years ago is nothing like what we have today. And that's just traditional breeding. We are not playing God. God has given us knowledge to be able to improve these crops so that we can feed and nourish our bodies. That's one ethical dilemma that everybody struggles with when they are looking at this particular technology. But beyond that, and to ease everybody in, it's the regulatory process that this thing goes through to come to market. It is daunting. The amount of regulatory data that you have to generate to be able to bring a single new improved variety through genetic modification to the market is unbelievable. And we are talking years. It would take you more than 13 years from discovery to the time this product makes its way to the farmer, just because you have to go through all of these regulatory steps. 
first looking at what you're doing. Where are you taking these genes from? Are you going to be increasing chances of allergies in the population? Because let's face it, look at peanuts today. A lot of people are allergic to peanuts. What if a crazy scientist somewhere is sitting somewhere taking genes from peanuts and putting it in maize, which everybody eats? That would be disastrous. Someone has to make sure that that doesn't happen. And this is what the regulators are doing, just scrutinizing every single process and asking questions. Give me proof that this is not toxic. If I am going to be producing, helping a maize plant to produce its own protection mechanism, this is now being expressed in a maize plant. Now, I need to the regulators that that particular protein is not toxic to a human being. So I need to generate all of that toxicity data to count all nerves that this is not going to be a toxic product. I need to ensure regulators that this is not going to harm the environment. No one wants to release a variety that will end up being a wheat, something that is there and is out of control. There's no way of us controlling it. The good thing is that we have international standards and protocols that shows us how to do all of these things. So today, you can take a product through all of these regulatory steps. And after, say, 13 years of test and regulatory reviews, uh, you are now ready to say, yes, my product is, is ready to go to market. I would say I feel safer in a genetically modified product as compared to some of the conventional counter. I'm not exaggerating here. It's in all because of the amount of regulatory steps that each and every one of these products have to go through before it gets to the hands of the farmer. Definitely. I think we can probably have a whole other conversation just talking about the regulations around us for our farmers' sake. But great insights again, Godwin. I'd like to come back and you know talk about some of the success of these applications and taking this on, real-world applications of genetic modification in agriculture. You know, you spoke yeah. briefly about, you know, the, the climate and environmental challenges um, when it comes to this. So could you talk a bit about these kind of crop yields or enhanced resistance to these challenges yeah. farmers face daily? Let's take, for example, uh, fall army one. I mean, it didn't used to be a problem before. All of a sudden, these pests are ravaging the entire African continent. They can take a field of maize and reduce it to nothing. Something like this. And then you have a technology that can protect the plant against fall army one such that when I deploy this technology, I know when my field is attacked by fall armyworm, all these pests will die and my plant will still be standing. I would be able to realize real-time harvest, the same or even better harvest as I expected. Right? So this is some of the real-life examples. Then we have these technologies today. It's not like uh, science fiction. There are technologies today that would enable the plants to protect itself against fall armyworm, take some crops like cotton ballworm, protect itself against it so you know you don't have to be spraying your field all the all the time we have plants that are, withstand drought and i know sometimes it's a bit a big debate around this but it does work right so we have drought resistant maize plants that are being deployed in many parts of africa and i believe south africa is one of it that has already deployed these kind of crops these are all real life examples we are talking about climate change we are talking about future resilience you don't want to be tilling the environment all the time because then you're just contributing to climate change, soil erosion and all of that. So conservation tillage has become a big movement and sure we are protecting our climate. We have crops that would be able to help you do conservation tillage such that you don't have to till the entire field before you plant. You just plant, the weed will come, no problem, you just spray it. The weed dies, your crop stands. That's a win for climate change. So we have all of these technologies real life right now that can easily be adopted. Just a few examples. I can go on and on and on, I'm sure. 
Definitely. I can imagine that there's so much more that you want to share with us. Another aspect that we touched on briefly was around consumer concerns when it comes to GMO products. Maybe you can start by just telling us how the perception of genetically modified crops has evolved in recent years. And what are some of the strategies that farmers, specifically commercial farmers, should employ to kind of navigate consumer concerns and market demand effectively? I think it's important to understand people's honest fear of what they do not understand and not be dismissive of that. So as you heard from my intro, I myself was very skeptical of this technology when I started. And I have some science background. So imagine someone out there without any science background hearing all of these negative stories being told about this technology. I think people would genuinely be concerned and it's okay to be concerned. That's why you have to trust in some of the institutional structures that have been put in place also the regulatory structures that have been put in place to try and allay some of these exact fears. It's okay to be concerned. And I think generally we've seen a public that is a bit skeptical. Of course, everybody have their own reason for this particular technology. That has driven perceptions a bit. And also you find people that have made this their business to be able to perpetuate this culture of fear, spread a lot of misinformation. There is no way corn would look like fish. There's no way any breeder injects tomato to bring new variety. And yet these are the pictures you see on the internet purporting to be genetically modified organisms. And this just adds to people's anxiety, creates the impression as though something fishy is being done behind the scene to produce something that is not safe and is being pushed aggressively. What farmers can do, any farmer that has been brave enough to overcome some of this misinformation and disinformation campaign, all of this skepticism, is to be able to open up their facilities to others to come and see what exactly a GMO looks like. And if you can tell the difference between a GMO maize and a non-GMO maize, there's practically no difference when you're looking at them. But it's not that obvious to everybody. And so I think what farmers can do to assist in this process of helping reduce some of these negative perception is to be able to open up their facilities for what we call seeing is believing. If I can see it, if I can touch it, if I can feel it, I'll be less threatened by this technology. Just touching on the very first thing you said in response to my question, just around kind of saying that people's feelings are valid and that the fear is okay to have it there and not just dismiss it completely. And that's a very, I think, positive approach to it. And just ending that, yeah, it's important. And I think that's the only way we can learn and grow. Exactly. I think sometimes people have valid questions that they are asking. Of course, there are people that are just a bit mischievous when it comes to this technology and will spread any likes just to, to whip up some emotion and sensationalism. Those are there. Of course, it's unfortunate that anybody would do that for a technology that is really out there and can help farmers. But there are others who just genuinely are worried that this technology is not safe. And I think these are the people we need to reach out to and, and show them why this technology is safe. And if a farmer can open up their field and invite people to their field on a field day, for instance, come and see me cultivating this crop, come and see me harvesting this crop, come and see me eating this crop. I used to go on trips within Africa, outside Africa, we'll go on a farmer's field. They will harvest this BT sweet corn, they would prepare it, boil it on farm and share it amongst all the participants. Just eat it. Tell me if you see a difference. I mean, I mean, you feel a difference between this and the normal sweet corn, any other sweet corn that you've ever eaten. That helps to take away the fear that people may have even talking about this technology. Definitely. Now, as we wrap up the conversation, Godwin, and you know, 
we've spoken very broadly around all of this, but for a farmer listening who really wants to kind of incorporate genetically modified crops into their practices, into their crop rotation and pest management approaches, what would you say to them specifically around this pursuit of sustainable and responsible agriculture? It's really important because with this technology comes some responsibilities as well for the farmer who is growing it and stewardship becomes really, really important. Your ability to follow the instructions have been given by the, the technology developers to ensure that we're able to use this technology for long enough time. Because what, what happens is if once you start planting insect protected crops, for instance, you start to create a bit of what we call a bit of a selection pressure because the insects are dying. If you have even one insect that survives, they can easily spread that trait to other insects. And then you, you begin to see a resistance building up. So stewardship becomes really important. And to any farmer who is listening to me right now, I think they can, they can relate to this. You want to make sure that we break any possibility of resistance building up for some of these technologies. So if the technology owner says you should plant a refuge, please comply and plant this refuge because it helps you. It helps the durability of the technology as well. So for me, refuge and compliance is my key message that I would leave to all the farmers who are listening to me today is try and comply with the refuge. For any farmer who is still sitting on the fence thinking whether or not should I adopt this technology, should I not, I want to encourage you, just try it. Give it a try and see for yourself. I'm sure you yourself will come give you a testimony of how this technology has helped you to manage some of the key challenges you're probably facing on your farm. Thank you so much for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track. Godwin Lemgo, Regulatory Scientific Affairs Manager for Bayer Crop Science in Africa. He's, of course, based in Kenya. The work you're doing is amazing. And you can, of course, read more on this topic by visiting www.foodformzanzi.co.za. And that's a wrap from me, Dor Numdu, our technical producer, Megan van der Fendt, and the rest of the hashtag Team Foodformzanzi. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food Form Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.